So we will play the intro song. Okay. It is mandatory that you dance during it. Okay. Um, <laughs> I will do the intro. I'll say, welcome to Let's Learn Everything. Um, yep. Is that the intro song? Oh, good. Hello, and welcome to Let's Learn Everything, the show where we learn anything and everything interesting. Today, we have a special guest who will be asking (sighs) us a science question. And then we'll ask them a few miscellaneous questions of our own. See how they like it. (laughs) My name's Tom, and today's guest is an award-winning journalist, the founder of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network, and the host of the amazing investigative climate podcast, Drilled. Woo! My name's Ella, and today I'm going to be asking our guest, what is the Atlas Network? And why are they so cartoonishly evil? (laughs) Amazing. My name's Caroline, and I'm going to be asking our guest, when it comes to climate journalism, why podcasts? My name is Amy Westervelt, and I'm asking you guys, what is carbon capture? (gasps) That's so good, because it's something that I'm like aware of. Yeah. but have never been bothered to look into yeah. myself. <laughs> yeah, gets talked about a lot. We all think we know what it is. Uh-huh. What is it? What is it? Honestly, what is it? We'll get to that in a second, and I'll have time to, to Google to save face. Mm-hmm. Uh, but until then, um, Amy, we're very happy to have you here. Um, no, but we, gen- <laughs> we genuinely very much are. Amy, you are our most serious guest, oh, I would say, today. Goodness. I'll say most esteemed, esteemed? I think. Yeah, uh, I guess, because as... As a, a journalist investigative kind of realm of things, so this is very exciting and new territory for us. Ooh, exciting! I will, I will try to not be too serious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, yeah, the the slam on my uh, intro at the beginning was a very good sign. <laughs> but uh, Amy, for those who don't know, can you give us a brief overview? who you are and what Drilled is. It's it's an amazing show. Thank you. Uh, I am a climate reporter. I do mostly investigative stuff. I'm super focused on accountability journalism. So kind of looking at what are all the reasons that we have not acted on the climate issue and who and what are the entities kind of behind that and, you know, looking into where money is flowing and why and all that kind of stuff. Um, We're all nodding furiously. We're all like, hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the most important side of the climate story, I think. Um, and then, I, you know, I was a print journalist for a really long time and then I was jealous of people who worked on the radio and I was like well maybe I could work on the radio so I I actually like I emailed my local public radio station with an email oh, amazing saying <laughs> the subject line was would you like an overaged intern and uh, <laughs> And they were very nice. They were like, you know, actually, it takes us a lot longer to train people on the reporting side than on the audio equipment mm. side. So, yeah, come on in. And I, oh, amazing. I 
interned there for a couple months, and then I became a community reporter in Reno, Nevada, for the public radio station. And nice. that is wild. a wild place to be a community reporter. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was great. That's what got me thinking about, you know, oh, why isn't there a more narrative climate show? Because at the time, it was mostly mm, just inter- mm. interview shows and like, or like experts talking about. Uh, science and policy and those are all very necessary shows but I was Mm. like you know you kind of there's kind of a high bar to entry there (laughs) yeah um so I thought for a while and came up with like oh maybe I can do a true crime podcast about climate change and that's how Drilled came about I love Drilled I have to say I absolutely love Drilled yeah because I am a big true crime fan and yeah yeah, without say without (laughs) this sounds gonna sound weird but a big climate change fan. <laughs> I follow it. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's a, a meeting, just the a perfect merging of, uh, you know, of your interests, a good way to get you into that. Yeah. 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 I was like, yeah, people need an on-ramp. It's too much. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I have so many questions for you. I'm sure Caroline and Tom do. But I think we Absolutely. should do yours first. <laughs> carbon capture what is it mm? yeah uh-huh. all right uh-huh. That's, what, okay I'm what scared. is it yeah we sh- we should there's always the <laughs> moment at the start where the so typically on the show amy one of us will have the question and so now you are in the the wonderful seat where you get to watch us flail for a good minute or so trying yeah. to answer the question without any information else yeah um, <laughs> amazing i love it i i'm going based off what i know in nature okay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so Ooh. i'm aware that for example fungi soil-based fungi like sequester carbon from the like mm-hmm. broken down material and they store it in the kind of within the hyphae so my guess would be that carbon capture is that kind of system where you're taking carbon out of the atmosphere through not necessarily just grabbing it from the air but through other mechanisms natural mechanisms maybe and then storing mm-hmm. it like that hopefully yeah yeah so pretty sure that's wrong i think you probably what? just take like a big <laughs> scoop and you grab it from the atmosphere <laughs> take a big scoop from the atmosphere grab it capture it like a straw big carbon net Ooh, yeah, yes. yeah yeah uh-huh, uh-huh. a big carbon straw um but it, it, it is interesting because I, I and again like we said before it, it's just it's such a phrase that we've i've seen and I feel like I've seen in many contexts, right, where yeah, it's like, you know, yeah. like I feel like experimental carbon capture or like is carbon capture good or like just like from so many contexts. And A, I don't know the, you know, what sort of like the most recent opinion on it is, but also B, I don't know what it is in the first place, which I feel like <laughs> would be helpful in answering that first question. Yeah. But I mean, as much as I joked about like a big scoop, there is something that for me, it, it sounds somewhat in, industrial in nature, but I could be wrong. I don't know. Like, is there a way to capture carbon? Uh, oh, Caroline, help. Well, like, are you thinking like in a more like a lab setting, a mechanical setting of like, yeah, almost. I could be to... very wrong. I'm sticking on the natural route. I'm sticking on the natural route. Like, uh... yeah. you know what? I'm picturing one of those um, air filters, but just like a big one that Uh, captures carbon maybe (laughs) i don't know i do i will say i have i have negative connotations with the phrase carbon capture for some reason and i don't know why i feel like it's a kind of um i feel like for me it's almost this might not be quite the right phrasing but almost like a gimmicky term 
that exactly use, that's what I you know? mean yeah, oh, yeah. I like mm-hmm. this term that people throw around that doesn't necessarily mean very much or that people throw around maybe when they shouldn't be using that sort of terminology to make themselves like almost greenwashing-y kind of vibes. That's yeah, the sort of thing I get from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So maybe I'm not stupid and wrong. Maybe I've just been misled by a deceptive term. That's what I'll Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever seen those like yogurt adverts, yogurt adverts where they talk about the bacteria in the yogurt? You know, they make up like a, a phrase for a bacteria like gut is good storia. Oh, yeah. I feel like I see adverts saying like tech companies that are doing carbon capture in that way that gives Mm. me that same vibe Amy I hope you're going to tell us something good (laughs) yeah Um, I mean, kind of, kind of. This is good. Actually, like you're you're kind of all right. Oh, oh. lovely. Very diplomatic answer. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. To not say yes. one of us has won, which is Tell what we want to hear. All right, please. Thank you. <laughs> um, there is a natural carbon capture that happens when mm, you mm. you know employ certain types of farming practices or conservation practices or you know trees the big this is the big one right is planting mm, trees mm, although mm. of yeah. course you know young trees capture a lot less carbon than older trees and they take a long time to grow so there's a lot of this like one for one kind of math that people do that's not quite right uh, mm. but yes the biggest the most of the time when people are talking about it it's an industrial process where they <gasps> are capturing co2 at the source um usually at power plants that's oh. the main that's the main the main place with yeah kind of a filter type contraption and then oh I can't believe Tom was right yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. then like the big actually the biggest controversy around carbon capture well there's a few but one of the biggest ones is sort of what gets done with that carbon once it's captured yeah. Yeah. right now they let it free on a farm. It goes up to a yeah. farm upstate no. and it roams free. No. <laughs> and it roams free. It eats grass yeah. for the rest of its life. Um, no, it, uh, it's, it's, so we're talking about compressed carbon in most cases, and that either needs to be stored very deeply underground, or there are a lot of plans right now to sort of like pipe it around different places, which is alarming because you're talking about the industry that has you know i don't even know what the stats are on the number of oil spills a year but it's not nothing and it's definitely a lot more than one um and also just the (laughs) idea of i don't know i i mean i guess there could be a way to be doing it well but just the idea of like building infrastructure to move this garbage carbon around just feels like yeah work upon work you know and it's very dangerous if compressed carbon leaks really like 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 compressed co2 carbon dioxide like like as a gas yeah in fact there was um this happened in a town in mississippi a pilot carbon capture project in the town of sarsha mississippi had a leak and poisoned the whole town it was like a zombie apocalypse People were like oh. walking around frothing at the mouth. It was really, really oh my very scary. Because I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I did not think that because I don't know. You think compressed carbon 
And in my mind, I'm I'm thinking either like carbon dioxide is the gas that I yeah. breathe out, right? So and uh, totally, I had the same thing. And I was talking to this, I, I know a reporter who did a story on this town in Mississippi. And I was like, I don't get it. Why is it so dangerous? Isn't that just what there is in the bottles that they attach to like soda machines, right? Like, yeah, that's the other thing, carbon. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, right. And then he goes... Do you know how many people doing that job die every year? And I was like, what? <laughs> no. Way. I know. I was like, no, I had no idea that like this was a dangerous job. No. Like, yeah, he's like, yeah, the people who swap out those tanks, there's like a really, um, it's a really dangerous job and nobody wow. talks about it. And I was like, oh my God, you're right. I've literally never heard of this. That's the thing. Life. Like when you talk about that story of that town that got poisoned, you'd think that that would be yeah. huge news that everybody would be hearing about, that everybody would then want to yeah. be learning more about. And this is the first time that we're all hearing yeah. about this. That's shocking. Yeah, you say that, Caroline, but I did see a story a couple of days ago that another chemical plant in Texas had exploded oh, and no really? one absolutely no one <laughs> reacted to that at all so I think these things <sighs> just happen so often now we're so people like, just completely gloss over them yeah and it, that's so yeah. sad honestly yeah yeah it needs yeah. a more dangerous word it needs to be called like zombie carbon or something because yes. compressed <laughs> carbon leak just yes. sounds like like oh okay so you got totally. like you have like a little leak the other really controversial thing about okay we're going to capture all this carbon what are we going to do with it mm. is that the the primary use of it at the moment this is so ridiculous. Oh, I can't wait. It's a thing called enhanced oil recovery. Um, they take it and they inject it into wells that are like near the end of life to get more oil out of them. No! Oh my no! God. What? No! I, I thought what? the carbon capture was, I genuinely stung because I thought the carbon capture was a good thing. Like I thought it was like to take carbon uh -huh. out of the atmosphere for to reduce this climate is why, global warming. So this is the thing. Like there's a bunch of science. There are a lot of scientists who are very um, pro carbon capture. The IPCC has said, look, carbon capture is necessary for us to get to certain goals, all of this stuff. But what they all say, and this is what like the oil companies leave out in their ads is that it doesn't do anything unless you decarbonize first. Decarbonization is just the reduction of carbon production. That's right. Yeah. Like just buy it by an industry. Right. Like just reducing the amount of fossil fuels that are being developed or used. So carbon capture is supposed to be used for what they call hard to abate sectors like mm -hmm, air mm -hmm. travel, right. super heavy industrial manufacturing is like, you know, considered a hard to abate sector. So in those kinds of situations, if you can capture and store the carbon, then that is, is helpful because we don't really have other ways to do those things yet. It is right. not yeah. supposed to be A, to get more oil out of the ground or B, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to justify you getting more oil out of the ground in the, all of these other ways. I It's just so... Uh amazing the jargon upon jargon these like really <laughs> yeah. enhanced oil recovery it's but and when uh -huh. it, in fact yeah. it's just like it's like hey guys we made we made the first oil rig made out of completely recycled plastic bottles it's like <laughs> <laughs> yes. it's like yes. it's like creatively bad honestly it's yeah kind of it is it really is. Yeah. I mean, the um, the other one, like when, you know, oil companies have been talking a lot lately about how they are lowering the quote unquote carbon intensity of their operations. And a lot of times mm -hmm. they use carbon capture for that, too. So they're like, we have carbon capture at our refinery or at our power stations or whatever. And that means that 
our operations are generating less carbon, but it doesn't take into account the product that they're producing, which mm -hmm. is like the mm -hmm. primary mm -hmm. source of CO2 emissions. So yeah, it's very, it's, there's a lot of creative math happening. Also, there is like a, a whole other component of it called direct air capture, which literally is sort of like sucking it out of the atmosphere. It's called oh. direct air capture. <laughs> Tom's dancing because he got it the answer right. I can't Tom was the most right. That's so annoying. <laughs> Yes. It, and actually, like, they're, again, scientists, a lot of scientists are quite optimistic about it, but they always, always, always say, but only if you decarbonize first. So it's, yeah, so it's not like you could just, <laughs> oh, we're doing carbon capture, so you can pop out way more now. Just keep on yeah, putting that, it. Yeah, which we'll... is how they're treating it. That's how they're yeah. treating it. They're like, it's fine yeah. that we're expanding our operations because uh -huh, we have uh -huh. carbon capture, we have carbon offsets, all of these things that, and it's like, you know, it kind of works on a spreadsheet, but the atmosphere doesn't give a shit about your spreadsheet. <laughs> it's still going to be impacted no matter what, you and know. it sounds like when scientists are talking about it, it's like do X and decarbonization. Yeah. But then in the bureaucracy, the telephone, it turns into do this like asterisk very tiny print like and also maybe we should decarbonize a totally little bit. totally it's all it's just become like even in the um so you know every few years the intergovernmental panel on climate change the ipcc kind of puts out this report that that just basically it's like a review of all of the climate science it's like here's mm -hmm. what the consensus science is on climate they they look into the problem itself they look into various mitigation strategies and they kind of the last report is sort of like here's what needs to happen so in the last report they're like yes we're probably going to need to deploy carbon capture and in even in that thing they said you know for the hard to abate sectors mm -hmm. once we've done decarbonization. But mm -hmm. that whole part got lopped out. And even a lot of media <laughs> outlets were like, IPCC says like carbon capture. It's like a solution. Hurrah. And oh, no, yeah. it's not so much. Yeah. Amy, I was going to ask you, actually, because we're on this topic. You Did you see the uh, I mean, I'm sure you did see the news two weeks ago about the carbon budget. Yes. The, I don't know if you if that's relevant to this. I would have thought so. Oh, the, totally. That's the thing. Like, what is this this news for folks who? Yeah. So, uh, two weeks ago, about two weeks ago, there's this uh, kind of research that came out that showed that the amount of carbon we can put into the atmosphere in which we can not cross the 1.5 degree mm -hmm. Celsius of warming has reduced. Like, it's tiny. How much carbon we can actually put in and not hit that temperature change is much mm -hmm. smaller than we thought it was. Yeah. And so all of this kind of, yeah, carbon capture stuff, I guess, in theory, could give us more space to release more carbon. But like Amy says, if you're not also decarbonizing at the same time, then you've just got this and nothing's changing. Yeah. It's like pouring water into a bucket full of holes. Is, is like how I think of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And like along the way, drilling in more holes so you can pour more water in. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's yeah. A, what, why did, wait, hold on. I think they think by 2030, we'll reach 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, which we don't want to get into right now, but has massive implications for many, many things across the planet. Yeah. <laughs> 1.5 doesn't totally. sound like a lot, but it's 
you know, in the grand scheme of things is, is massive. It's huge. <laughs> Big deal. I'm just thinking of the, like some of the topics we covered and it's like, it's, it's, a, it's a change that affects many topics we've covered, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> like absolutely. biology, conservation, yeah. geoscience. I think about you covered thermoregulation, Tom, mm -hmm. an animal which has to hold itself in this temperature, this very specific temperature mm -hmm. in yeah. oceans. So I covered the deep sea. Yeah. That yeah. level of warming within the ocean has catastrophic effects not just to marine life, yeah. but to things like carbon mm -hmm. capture within the ocean. It's insane. Right. Actually, for years, decades, the the entire climate science community was really into this idea that actually the ocean would just absorb all of our CO2 emissions and it would be <laughs> fine. And then they discovered ocean acidification and were like, oh, maybe not fine. Oh, there's things there. Oh, <laughs> not good. <laughs> But even just aside from the the acidity, the um the like the temperature itself is a problem in all these weird ways, right? Like I I um I did a story a while ago on crab fishermen in the in the west of the U.S. Oh, rock and, and they, roll. Um, they have this issue because the warming waters generate more of one particular type of algae, and then when the crab eat it they produce a neurotoxin that's poisonous to people. Whoa. Oh, wow. Isn't that wild? So every year for the fishery to open, they have to test a bunch of crab randomly. And if any of them have a high level of this neurotoxin, then they won't let the, they won't allow the, the fishing to happen. So now, wow. like I think in the last five or six years, there's been maybe two years where they had no fishing at all. In mo other years, it's like it went from, you know, four months to one month and, you know, it's sort of like decimated entire towns and wow, yeah. So there's all of these really random follow-on impacts yeah. that I don't think people have grappled with yet. Not that I mean, you know, eating crab is, uh, you know, not a not a necessity <laughs> of life. <laughs> Talk for yourself, Amy. <laughs> it's just I've never heard such a clear like. This increase causes like dangerous neurotoxins to be produced. It's like, oh man, yeah. Yeah. Hey, let's do less of that. It's never usually such a like clear cut because like I also feel like what we all sort of were expecting you to talk about from like an algae or an algae perspective was like, yeah, maybe it caused more blooms and things like that, which then, right. <laughs> which it does, all of that like, too. So I think that's where we were expecting you to go. And then like you went straight yeah. down the neurotoxins route and we were like, oh, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's wild. Or even like, you know, there's a big public health concerns because there's, um, you know, bugs and things that have been in ice for a yeah, really long time yeah, yeah, that yeah. people are worried about being released or viruses that oh there's some um worms some nematodes <gasps> that were released <gasps> from ice somewhere in eastern europe a couple of years ago uh, because of Ugh. because of melting glaciers yeah they're not a threat this is actually just a cool fact they've been frozen in ice for like tens of thousands of years and they just they put them in some like broth and they woke up it was amazing. That's so wild. Yeah. So cool, but so scary. Wow. <laughs> they had just been like in like cryostasis. Broth made me think. I was like, no, no, don't eat them. Please, please, please. Why, what? Why, why were they no. eating them? Yeah, some nice warm toasty broth. But they they reproduced. They so now we've got like ancient wow. like ancient worms and <laughs> weird and interesting. So I mean you know, that's fun. Yeah. 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 That's, you know, there might be some silver linings. <laughs> take the good with the bad. Yeah, so doesn't, that, doesn't that change your perspective a little bit, don't you think? Yeah. Think about the warm broth, Amy. On the one hand, 
<laughs> this human neurotoxin, and on the other hand, a wonderful worm broth. An ancient worm, free at last. <laughs> the thing, actually, it's interesting, too, to think about with the carbon budget and like you were just saying about reaching 1.5 by 2030, there's been this weird shift in the last couple of years where all of all the oil companies and all of the sort of like pro fossil fuel politicians just like the the IPCC has been saying forever that look like 2030 is this sort of like big get your shit together or or we're done mm. for sort of deadline. And they all just changed it to 2050. And then they said it no. so many times that like everybody's just like, yeah, yeah, 2050. And I'm like, that is 20 years too late. 20 years. We're being gaslit by politicians. Yes. Oh, we said we said 2050 the whole time, guys. <laughs> yes, <laughs> totally. It's the fucking Elon Musk self-driving car. Yes. We're going to be on Mars timeline, right? It is. Which yes. is not what the IPCC should model themselves after necessarily. <laughs> that that yes. that strategy. Yeah, that is. I mean, carbon capture is very much um, a, a piece of that whole worldview too. Mm -hmm. The like the techno fix, we can just you know innovate our way into a solution and adapt our way into a, a livable future. And um, well, we've you know we've talked about this before on the podcast. When Caroline, when you covered gene editing for yes. climate change yeah, action yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting and it's like it's amazing the research people are doing to think of innovative ways to yeah. tackle climate change uh -huh. but when it came down to it we got to the end of that topic we thought but really the problem is not yeah the innovation it's right the lack of action in the first yeah. place one of my yeah. favorite examples once again is like methane from cows because like obviously cattle produce a lot mm -hmm. of methane and researchers think that they can like use genome editing basically to make cows that produce less methane in their farm yeah using different yeah. bacteria right yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and it's yeah. like that's that's such a cool thing that we can do that that's incredible that we are developing the technology and the knowledge base to be able to do things like that yeah and i'm sure that technology will have amazing implications in the future but also if we just change our own behavior, maybe we don't have to genetically yeah. modify cows, you know? And it <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yes. Very reminiscent yes. of that thing of like, maybe if we just change our behavior and decarbonize, we don't have to. And sure, some of that innovation could have really amazing like implications, but mm -hmm. surely it's mm. just a band-aid on this much greater issue, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Totally. I I did a story on the lab meat craze the first time it came around, which was like 10 or 12 <laughs> yeah, years ago. It's back yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. And I remember then too, like I, I talked to this guy who he had the coolest job. He was um <laughs> A historian. A podcaster. A his podcaster, yeah. No, he, was a, he, he was a historian of, and he studied how previous societies had envisioned the future. So like a historian oh, of past yeah. futures. Oh, oh so interesting. Great. I was like, I want to be you when I grow up. This is so interesting. <laughs> and he was like, like I was talking to him about the lab meat thing because he's like, well, you know, people have a lot of the same aversions to it that they had to refrigeration when refrigeration mm, was mm. first kind of introduced. People thought that was really weird and really like why would you want to artificially extend the life of a food that's gone bad? That's gross. You know, so funny. All of wow. that kind of stuff. I'm like, that's really interesting. But he also like, he's like, you know, that that's what I'll tell you as like from my academic self. But he's like, 
as a person, I just look at this and go, are we just totally giving up on the idea that we could eat like slightly less meat? That seems ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, it does. Also, like, what about the innovation in decarbonization? Why is that? I don't understand why it's like innovation in things that allow us to keep doing the same thing is applauded but innovation that you know actually reduces our energy consumption is like mm, i don't know yeah <laughs> yeah you know? also i apologize i feel like we've, we've taken you really off track yeah <laughs> <laughs> it happens but at the same time every anecdote that you have i'm like i i love to hear I anytime give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> i think that's it yeah I think those are the things. Okay, so to to try to bring together all of the different things we've learned about carbon capture and decarbonization, I think, honestly, one of the things I feel is that it is a such a strangely general term. Like, Mm -hmm. to your point, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, like, Ella was right that, like, those aspects of, like, natural carbon capture are carbon capture. Mm. And, And in part because of that, it's easy to talk about it vaguely instead of thinking about it critically. Like, where does the carbon go? Can you do it safely? Um, Are you going to use that compressed carbon to get more oil from the ground? Yeah. What Caroline said, we said about greenwashing. Yeah. 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 That's how I feel like we've come out of the end. I was thinking it was something great and it could be in theory. But really, it's used as a kind of ploy to Mm -hmm. distract or take away, you know, we can do this instead of taking real action. Yes. And it is like the number one thing that oil companies Mm. are kind of invested in, both in in terms of their own kind of R&D and and whatnot, but also um, it's what they're putting a lot of money into in university research and all that mm. stuff. It's um, it's carbon capture and hydrogen. If an oil um, company is putting a lot of money into it, you know not to trust it. It's one <laughs> yeah. of those, like... Basically, because they really, you know, even with, like, like, hydrogen and biofuels, too, the reason they like those is because they don't require getting rid of the combustion engine. Mm. So oh. you can still use fossil fuels in it. You know, it's like, oh, perfect. A lot of the infrastructure would stay the same. So like they hate, you know, solar and wind and stuff because it's like a whole new infrastructure, a whole new kind of distribution, all of that stuff. Mm, mm. But yeah, the things the things that sort of maintain the same infrastructure are always the things that they're really very interested in. So carbon capture. (laughs) So carbon capture. And it's like pipelines. We know how to build pipelines. (laughs) Leaky pipelines, but still (laughs) pipelines, you know? Yeah. That's why, like when that that story came out about that town being poisoned, I was like, yeah, how is this not a bigger story? This is their plan for the next 20 years is like building out an entire like nationwide system of these pipelines everywhere in every country that they're operating in and like and they're already falling apart like many years after implementation that's terrifying it it, it sounds like it's like the definition of if you have a hammer everything looks like a nail it's like if you are an oil company everything looks like a pipeline or a combustion engine (laughs) it's like it has to look like that that's right i i gotta say it's 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 really cool to uh, we all might know like a- an example of that but like when you have given me like 
I'm holding now like five different examples of that sort of like greenwashing. I'm like, okay, like this is ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. And so I think it's 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 very cool to be equipped with that. And I hope our listeners feel this way. It's it, it's just it's a feeling of like, I know what you're up to. You, do you think I'm stupid? Like Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amy, as we close out this topic, I wonder if is there anything maybe positive you can say about <laughs> This about carbon capture. Yeah. Well, actually, the fact that so many scientists are so positive about direct air capture and it being like a real thing that we can do is quite positive. Like, mm. I, you know, I mean, the idea that we can actually remove CO2 from the atmosphere is really exciting because that means, you know, like people talk a lot on climate about like, well, there's a certain amount of damage that's already baked in, right? Because mm. CO2 mm. is a long lived uh molecule Molecule. yeah (laughs) yeah man yeah major brain freeze so you know it like it sticks around for a long time Mm. so we can't just turn the clock back but direct air capture actually does let you turn the clock back that's wild the, the promising thing there is like if we can actually stop putting more into the atmosphere then direct air capture could be extremely promising and helpful and and could actually help to avoid um, some of the more catastrophic impacts of warming which is would be really nice that'd be great i I just have to restate like (laughs) it is so wild that that and like using old compressed carbon to like refract the earth are both called carbon capture <laughs> like yeah. it's it, that is yeah. so obfuscating but but this can can you go into a little bit more about this this form of uh of of carbon capture because I'm, direct I'm, yeah, air I'm less capture. yeah direct air capture they're sort of like these big machines that um suck in air and remove co2 from ambient air mm-hmm. you know it's not it doesn't have to be only employed at a power plant although mm-hmm. that's often where they're placed is sort of next to industrial areas where the concentration of of pollutants in general is quite high because it can you know it can help with air pollution as well so but you still have the storage issue so it's still sure. like what do we do yeah. right with yeah this But there are some applications where people are trying to sort of like use that captured carbon to create materials of some kind, for example. Mm -hmm. But it's it's pretty nascent. And the, the other kind of problem right now with direct air capture is that so far the technology requires sort of a massive giant structure. Right. Like structural machine. So the land issue is a big Mm, problem mm. they require quite a bit of land and they are also energy intensive themselves so if you're running a direct air capture project and it's fueled by anything other than renewables you're kind of again you know robbing peter to pay paul (laughs) but the fact that it is a thing that you can do is cool really cool that's cool and i I feel like it's the bane of headlines when something isn't a silver bullet, right? Like, I feel like every headline wants to be like, here's the silver bullet. But I love collecting this collection of like brass bullets that we've been, you know, like we've wiped the shine (laughs) off and we're like, oh, it's not silver. But it's like, when we have like enough of the, if I have like a hundred brass bullets, I can kill a werewolf. (laughs) Totally, totally. That's a great analogy, Toast. That was very good. Thanks. The the werewolf of climate change. (laughs) Actually, yeah, you like 1000% need that with climate change because it is like, 
you know, it's it touches so many different things. Yeah. You're not going to get yeah. at it right. with just even like, you know, people get very, very obsessed with the I call it just plugging their shit into something different. And <laughs> like, that's not that. You know, yeah. It's like, yes, sure. Batteries. But then then you a, you have the issue of all the stuff that goes into batteries. And then also, like, you still have the food system emissions and you still have, you know, it's there's a lot of of stuff that needs to get shifted. So, yeah, like technology, innovation, great behavior change. Great. You know, power structures shifting. Fantastic. All great things to root for there. All good. All good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Ella, what are you doing? I'm being a queer plane, of course. Oh, uh, oh, cool. Can I join in? I want to be a queer plane too. Sure, of course you can. Let's go. I forgot that all queer people can turn into planes. I'm so <laughs> jealous. Well, well, Tom, you might not be able to be a queer plane like us, but if you want, you could learn about how LGBTQ plus people have shaped the world of aviation and space exploration too. Yeah, just check out A Queer History of Aerospace, a new audio miniseries from the Museum of Flight. The Museum of Flight in Seattle, as in the largest private non-profit air and space museum in the world? That's the one. Through this miniseries, the Museum of Flight hopes to encourage people who have been left off museum walls to share their own histories so that together we can start telling the whole story. I listened to one of the most recent episodes that featured Joelle de Morancy, an aerospace engineer turned non-fiction children's book author. Oh. She talks a lot about her lived experiences as a black queer woman in the aerospace world, trying to find a place for her in that space and talked a lot about the slow progress that the industry is making in terms of diversity. She also talks a lot about writing her book, which was genuinely just really, really fun to listen to. Oh, that's great. That's so amazing. Really cool, right? What a life. Yeah, it's really great to hear stories directly from groups and communities that are often left out of the conversation, including people of colour, women and of course, LGBTQ plus people. Yeah, totally. And in my opinion, at least, a queer history of aerospace does this really, really well. Listen at museumofflight.org slash podcast or search The Flight Deck on your favorite podcatcher. New episodes every Tuesday. Meow. Meow. <laughs> the majesty of queer aviation. I'm Emily Heller. And I'm Lisa Hannawalt. And we're the hosts of Baby Geniuses. We've been doing our podcast for over 10 years. When we started, it was about trying to learn something new every episode. Now it's about us trying to actively get stupider. And it's working. <laughs> Hang out with us and you'll hear us chat about... Gardening. Horses. Various problems with our butts. And all the weird stuff that makes us horny. That's so weird, all that stuff. <laughs> Baby Geniuses, a show for adult idiots. Every other week on Maximum Fun. Baby Geniuses, we know everything. Baby Geniuses, tell us something we don't know. Oh, darling, why won't you accept my love? My dear, even though you are a duke, I could never love you. You, you borrowed a book from me and never returned it. <gasps> 
Save yourself from this terrible fate by listening to Reading Glasses. We'll help you get those borrowed books back and solve all your other reader problems. Reading Glasses, every Thursday on Maximum Fun. My question for you, Amy, and this is relating to your podcast, Drilled. Mm. The new series, the, the real the real free speech threat, which is just such a banger of a title, says all you need to know about what's what's going on here. It's a real slam dunk. Oh, thank you. And my question is, what is the Atlas Network and why are they so cartoonishly evil? Oh my God. I, this is such a, it's so fun for me to talk about because the Atlas Network has been around <laughs> for like decades, but weirdly undercovered in the media for some reason. Um, Can I say, so I, yeah. I listened to a little bit of the episode and then I reached one fact and then I was like, I just I want to save it to be fresh for when Amy can can unravel it. But the, the my favorite just like weird origin story fact is that like one of the people who started the group was also one of the people who brought factory cage farming from the U.S. Yep. to the U.K. Yeah, yep. yep. right. that's Anthony Fisher. It's just like if that's like the the prequel to this is like that's, <laughs> it's like I literally yeah. I, I literally I paused it. I was like, can't wait to hear the rest on the podcast. It's like a, vill <laughs> a villain super group, you know. The most yeah. amazing thing, too, is like Anthony Fisher tried to make turtle farming a thing as well. Oh. Caroline looks so upset. <laughs> I'm, I'm really angry about that. I'm so... What? Yes. No. Because his, no. whole, his whole thinking on like battery farming of chickens, right, was like, oh, well, this makes it more economical to create Wait, sorry protein. he wanted to battery farm t turtles yes t turtles. yes yes the battery farming of chickens is probably one of the worst things we've ever done for bird populations on this planet yeah you know how much bird yeah. flu is in the world because of yep. battery chicken farming yeah yep. we're destroying bird populations on this planet yeah he was like oh but this is an economical way to like create protein for people so that like that in and of itself this is an economical way to cause mass disease yeah <laughs> but like just that worldview to see all animals yeah chickens turtles whatever as just like more or less yeah. expensive forms of protein for humans to consume is like really That's interesting. Insane. Yeah. So he started the Atlas Network. So he's that guy. Yeah, he's the guy. But what is it for our listeners? What is it? It is a global network of free market, and I'm using air quotes that you can't see. Uh -huh. Free market uh -huh. think tanks. Think tanks. Yes. And they, so the, the very first one was started by a guy named Anthony Fisher in the UK. It was called the Institute for Economic Analysis. And Anthony Ooh. Fisher was this guy who, who came from a wealthy mining family. He fought in World War II. His brother died during the war and he came home and was like horrified at the fact that when Britain had its first post-war election, people voted for labor. So oh, he was no. like, because in his mind... Labor was like right there next to the Nazis because he's he's just like what? labor equals socialism. Socialism equals Nazis. I can't believe we're doing this. That is just so, we, we don't even have time to get into how wrong that is. Healthcare is Nazis. Mm -hmm, yep. So he really gets in a big flap about this. He wow. goes to the U.S., talks to a bunch of people there. This is where he picks up the tip about battery farming chicken. The tip. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Yeah. Decides that he's going to get into politics to try to stave off this leftward swing in the UK. In the process, reads a book, but not the actual book, the Reader's Digest version of the book. Another key, <laughs> key fact about Anthony Fisher. <laughs> So oh. there's, a, there's an economics book called The the Road to Serfdom. It's written by an Austrian economist named Friedrich Hayek. And oh, he, yeah. he basically makes the argument that the more government is involved in the economy, the worse it is for people and the less freedom there is. And the more you support individual entrepreneurs and businesses, oh. the more freedom there is in a society. That's that's roughly, I mean, it's there's a lot more to it, but that's basically his thing. Right. You could almost say you just gave us the Reader's Digest version of exactly, it. Exactly, <laughs> I did, I did, exactly. So when he gets back to London, Fisher goes to visit Hayek, who's teaching at the London School of Economics at the time. And he's like, I love your book. We need to get these ideas into politics. And that's why I'm running for office. And Hayek, is like, forget running for office. You need to engage in what he called the war of ideas. So he's like, look, the reason that labor has won is that they have captured hearts and minds. They have, you know, gotten their ideas accepted by elites in academia and all this other stuff. And that's where you need <sighs> to be focusing. So by this time, Fisher had started his chicken business and it was doing really well. So he had some money. <laughs> He used it to Forgot start. Forgot about that for a second. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, I, like it's this evil cabal meeting happening, but then in the background, you're just like, <laughs> what? Jesus, Anthony, shut those chickens up. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't we have this meeting anywhere else? <laughs> you got to think about the. <laughs> So he, yeah, starts the Institute for Economic Analysis and they just kind of just like putter along. Like he commissions a bunch of white papers on really wonky things about like tax code and accounting and things like that. It's not really doing much. Mm -hmm. But at a certain mm -hmm. point, he gets introduced to people at Shell and at BP and he gets them yes. to Woo. fund the IEA. And then they really start cooking with gas. Um, so <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so they start to <laughs> they start to um, get you know white papers going on broader economic theory, on energy policy, on all of these things. And at the time, this is like a very particular moment in time too. You have all of this mm, stuff mm. happening around the fossil fuel industry. This is we're talking like mm -hmm. late sixties, early seventies by this point. So you've got mm. the OPEC oil embargo in the early seventies. You have UK oil interests looking really like all over the world for more oil mm. that they can tap. Yeah, go go UK. Yeah, Yay! like being. <laughs> Being very concerned about what's happening in the Middle East and looking for, you know, places elsewhere that they might be able to get access to oil reserves and all of that kind of stuff. Right. So in order for all of that to happen, they need a, an economic and a geopolitical shift in their favor. And they see what Fisher's doing as potentially helpful in that. 
which is why they fund him. So he starts to get all these papers out. It starts to actually really work. You know, he's getting um, university professors on board. Their papers are getting handed out to politicians that have a fair bit of power. He ultimately helps Margaret Thatcher ascend. Oh, in... no. Oh, oh God. Oh, yeah. oh, that's wow. right. Oh, my God. Uh -huh. oh, no. <laughs> this is insane. What, what a horrible Avengers this has been. I don't know. Just, right. like... uh, we have a lot of young listeners, but for those listening, Margaret Thatcher was a <laughs> yeah. conservative yeah prime minister in the 70s i want to say the iron lady the iron lady she i think you can talk to a, a lot of people in this country and she destroyed the uk like the yeah. working class yeah in the uk yeah. she's like genuinely one of the when when she died <laughs> people were dancing <laughs> in the streets seeing ding dong the witch is yeah. dead yes that's yeah. right yeah. that's right it yes. was insane She's yeah. probably one of the most hated people in our country. She was your Reagan, if that helps anyone in the U.S. Yes, yeah. totally. That's right. She was like the U.K. Reagan. Yeah, I mean, and and 100% like very much introduced this idea of free market capitalism as like the way to do everything, privatize everything, you know, take away government support, get rid of the quote unquote nanny state all of that stuff. That was Margaret Thatcher. And mm. Anthony Fisher is the guy that really helped her to ascend and win wow. and, and change the political wow. landscape of the UK. So because he legacy. has all of this success, right, people in other major fossil fuel producing countries are like, we got to get some of that guy. So he goes on a whole tour. I need a Game of Thrones little finger. Where <laughs> <laughs> can I get me one of those soulless yeah. manipulators? So he goes to the US. He bros down with the Koch brothers in the US. I hate, I hate oh, this. Wow. I hate oh, this Avengers. <laughs> yes, yes. Hangs out with them. He goes to Canada. He helps to start this thing called the Fraser Institute. And again, it's like all the, the tar sands people and the mining and the lumber people, extractive industry across the board. Oh, in the midst of all this, right? <laughs> he has a little bit of a turn in his fortunes because he reinvests the, the many millions of dollars that he's made in his chicken farming in this turtle farming venture. Oh, God. <laughs> Very good. And a bunch of environmentalists all over the world organized ah, oh, hell yeah. to block any any of like their governments from accepting the idea of like turtle meat as a thing. So it gets completely shut down. And this sparks Anthony Fisher's like lifelong hatred of environmentalists. Okay. <laughs> That's fantastic. For ruining his turtle For ruining idea. Wow. his idea, yes. It was definitely the environmentalists. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. the environment. That's why the idea didn't, didn't take off. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. And also by again by ruining his idea, they mean speaking yes. about his idea, <laughs> just like... mentioning it. So he helped start institutes in the U.S., in Australia, in Canada. One of the places that he starts in the U.S. is called the Pacific Foundation, and it's it's very explicitly focused on pushing back against all of the new environmental regulations that were starting to be implemented in the U.S., Canada, Europe in the 70s. So mm -hmm. it's very much like this is a problem for industry. We need to fight back against it, all of that stuff. After he's kind of created a few of these IEA copycats, he's like, we 
should be a network because then we could all work together a lot better and also we could incubate more think tanks. We can get like a group discount on like evil costumes. It's really yeah. helpful. Yeah. Like share henchmen uh, between ourselves. I asked this guy who specifically researches the Atlas Network, like what, you know, why did they need this? Like they already had, you know, these really elaborate PR strategies and lobbying firms and all these other things. The think tanks, it's kind of, I don't know, they, they seem kind of cartoonish, right? They, they make these really yeah. extreme statements and they seem sort of clownish. And he said, no, that's the whole point. Like they say the stuff that the companies themselves don't feel comfortable saying because it's too extreme, oh. but they want those ideas to be out there. And and then, so then he started talking to me about the Overton window, right? Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah. Which is this idea of like, the more extreme ideas you float, the more it makes slightly less extreme ideas seem moderate. Oh, uh, I see. Yeah. And guess what? It was an Atlas think tank person that came up with the Overton window. <gasps> no. Yep. Oh my way. God. What? They literally invented Overton the Overton himself. Yes. Overton. Are you no. kidding me? Nope. No. Yes, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Overton worked for a place called the Mackinac Institute. Uh, he was the senior policy advisor there. And that's when he sort of came up with, you know, this this way to describe what the Atlas Think Tanks had already been doing for a while by that point. But he was like, yeah, this is what we're doing. And we it, it works. Like it helps to float these ideas, kind of normalize them in the public, and then, you know, shift people to the right. They invent, literally invented the Overton Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, it's I, wild. Like, you know, people talk about, you know, conspiracies like the Illuminati and stuff. Yeah. And we're sitting here with like a real life. It's a, it's. Real. That's what I always say. It's I'm like, real. Oh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And it's there to see for everyone to see. And they're saying it. Yeah. And it's just not talked about. Yeah, <laughs> totally. That's what I am. I'm always like, no, the conspiracy is real. It's just not the one that like you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Yeah. So he starts the Atlas Network in 1981. Starts to create more of these sort of copycat think tanks, but also opens it up for membership to just like like-minded think tanks. So then you get all of the Coke-funded organizations in the the U.S. Policy Exchange in the U.K. is an Atlas think tank. Mm -hmm. um, there are loads of them in Australia, all over the world, really. There's almost 600 of them now. Whoa. <gasps> so all belong, sorry, all belong to the Atlas Network Atlas. specifically? Yes. And so that, and their wow. sole purpose is influencing policy. Right. Then. Yeah. That's yeah. insane. It's really, 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 yeah. And insane. they're funded. How are they funded? They don't disclose their funding, but we know yeah, that the okay. right. original, yeah. 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 <laughs> they, like, yeah, the original funding for most of many of them comes from oil and gas companies. Wow. Sure. So that's not a big surprise. Extractive industry in general, you know, it was, yeah. 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 So now, you know, a lot of what they do, like they they'll like write these position papers that then they get to politicians and then the politicians take those up and, you know, maybe craft legislation based on them. They also do a lot of media work like their spokespeople are mm -hmm. the ones that are out there kind of floating ideas a lot. Um, so the reason we looked at them is that we're looking at this increase in the criminalization of climate protest. And we mm. I had reporters in lots of different places who were all seeing like we were just hearing really similar rhetoric on TV and radio when people were talking about this stuff. And so it was like, OK, well, let's see like what organizations are they affiliated with? And then we figured out that they were all Atlas Network 
think tanks. Wow. So I was like, oh, wow. Like, of course. And they actually, they talk quite a bit about how much they collaborate and sort of share across organizations. So um, like they were, one of the guys who ran it after Fisher was this guy named Alejandro Chafuin. And he has a like a kind of a weird like like early internet blog where like he's like <laughs> oh. it's sort of a diary slash blog that's very very interesting and um he talks on there about how like like they were a beta tester for IBM to to like oh. use the early internet to be able to share ideas with each other so like wow yeah yeah that's the Atlas wow. network holy <laughs> Holy moly. They're just fighting for freedom. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot more to to learn about this, right, from you. Yeah, we've got we've got a really long story on the drill.media website. And then we also did a podcast episode about it. And then actually after that all came out, um, one of the people who runs one of their think tanks challenged me to a debate on Twitter. (laughs) (gasps) Challenged me to a duel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She um she made a bunch of like fight posters that were like her versus me. Oh. <laughs> did you are you gonna do it? Oh I did it. Yeah, I did it. Oh, I you um did it. I yeah, I well I was like I was like, well I actually like I tried to um request an interview with you and I didn't hear anything back. So like I've wanted to talk <gasps> oh, to you for this story. <laughs> Like, let's do it. If you need to frame it as a debate, that's fine. But like, yeah, sure, let's do it. So we had this really interesting conversation and I made a podcast episode out of it. I didn't, I haven't seen this one. Oh, we gotta find. Oh my God, okay, I cannot wait to listen to that. I thought it was Uh good for Uh people to hear, but it was hilarious because I like, I went in again, I was like, right, it's just an interview. We're just going to talk about stuff, whatever. She came in like pretty hot and then, But, you know, by the end, I was, I don't know, I was telling someone the other day, I'm like, look, I have like a very difficult mother. So tense conversations are like, (laughs) (laughs) I'm good at them. (laughs) Yeah. So so you, would you say you won the debate? I feel like I was pretty calm and like reasonable throughout. And by the end, she was like, you seem like a really reasonable person. I'm like, I am a reasonable person. That's why. Um, She had a lot of ideas where I was like, I don't know where you're getting these ideas from, because I don't know anyone in the climate space that thinks any of the things that you're arguing against. And like, oh, just strawman and strawman. Total. Yeah. It's hard to imagine someone with such opposing views to you also coming out and saying, you seem like a reasonable person. Because normally they're so hot about it, you know? Yeah, totally. So actually, it was good. I think it was like a good thing to do. It's helpful for me, too, because I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting that that's, you know, why you think about it this way. It was a good conversation Mm. to have. And then then I asked her. So actually, we ended like on a pretty good note. And then I asked her to send me the audio because she kind of insisted on like her taping it. And I was like, all right, fine. This is a thing that happens a lot too with people in this universe is they're very paranoid uh-huh. and like they think you're going to, you know, sure, edit, sure, sure. edit them to sound a certain way, this, that, the other. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, she yeah. sent it to me and, um, <laughs> and the, the, the title of the of the audio file, her name's Magat. The title of the audio file was Magat versus Amy. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, so funny. Yeah. 
So yeah, there's lots of Atlas Network content on our <laughs> website now. I cannot wait to <laughs> yeah, we're, dive we're all into very this excited more. To... Yeah. <laughs> it's such an amazing coda to the to the wild Atlas Network story for it to end with you being like, yeah, and then I got into a debate with one of the people there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Through this conversation, I've learned to expect nothing less, but it does make me very, very happy. Totally, right? <laughs> In the same way that, that they said that they after the conversation they learned that you were a very calm and reasonable person i feel mm -hmm. like after this i feel like you i've learned that you are a very passionate fighty person yes. i hope that's a better compliment yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> who's next caroline it's me yeah so we've touched on like coming into the podcasting sphere a little bit i really want to know like when it comes to climate journalism why podcasts seem to be the thing that you've sort of gravitated towards and why that's a tool that you use quite a lot yeah um and actually how you entered this weird wacky world of podcasting altogether i'd love to hear a little bit more about that yeah so i was you know working at a public radio station and quickly realized that as i'm sure you guys know that you know every four minute news feature has like 10 hours worth of tape behind it oh yeah <laughs> and that like and then like a lot of the stories get cut the sort of characters and the mm. the personalities and all of that and so I was like oh now I get it I get why people like to make podcasts because you get to do a story um and I had been a yeah. climate reporter for mm. a long mm. time before that so I started thinking about okay what could I do in the climate space and it actually it kind of took me a while because mm. I was like, oh, maybe this is why there aren't any narrative climate shows. Even though there are lots of climate <laughs> stories, it's like we're not really used to thinking about climate stories as stories. Yeah. Totally. They're like compilations of facts, you know, Yeah, <laughs> which, which is also a big problem because it's really yeah. hard for yeah. people to get, you know, like you've got one side using fear being like they're gonna take your hamburgers and ruin your way of life and leave you in the dark <laughs> cold and shivering and you've got the other side being like look at my chart yeah. look at my chart it's so cute yeah. <laughs> that's so true oh. i follow a lot of like climate people on twitter and it's just a, a chart yeah. a day kind of yes. track yeah. this yeah, yeah, temperature yeah. change i'm like <laughs> totally which i love that's great but also it becomes meaningless when that's all you see yes. well yeah how yes. how are people supposed to be engaged with that when like let's face it a lot of people like their experience of working with that sort of stuff is like from school and right. hopefully not having a great time with engaging with that exactly so, yeah like mm. drawing people in in some way can be really really difficult on this side right yes can you speak to some of the difficulties you say starting up this sort of how it didn't take yeah. easily? Oh, yeah, totally. So I <laughs> the whole way I finally kind of found this idea was I got assigned to do a print story on a lawsuit that the cities of San Francisco and Oakland filed against the oil companies. It was one of the early climate Ooh. liability suits. So they were basically mm. saying, look, you had all this information instead of sharing it you sort of hit it or spun it and because of that we now have out of control climate change which is really expensive for cities to deal with so like why should san francisco be on the hook for millions of dollars worth of seawalls you know you guys should pay your fair share so that's kind of the the basic mm -hmm. argument of those cases and in that case the judge requested a climate science tutorial in his courtroom which was super interesting. Whoa. Oh, I know. 
he was like a really eccentric guy. Like he had previous to that, he had taught himself how to code for like a a software case (laughs) that he was was presiding over. He had like should have been a teacher kind of person. Totally. Like he's like, I need to understand more about this. I mean, that's good though. That's like a it's really good. It's really good. Well, it's a lot more like the way courts work in some other European countries where you know you have judges Mm. Ah. that do like evidence finding and fact finding and all of that stuff too. Mm, So mm, anyway, so he he requested this climate science tutorial. So I went and I I got there super early so that I could like be in the courtroom for it because I was like, I want to, you know, make sure that I can see who's talking and get the vibe of people and whatever. And I was that's I like I was like, oh, my God, this is it. I'm going to do it like a true crime courtroom drama style podcast. Climate change Because <laughs> you had this judge that was kind of eccentric. You had all the climate mm-hmm, scientists. Mm-hmm who were there to testify and of course like did I see the characters yes yeah totally yeah. And, like yeah. the the activists and like the oil company lawyers and all of that stuff so i was like oh great this is what i'm going to do and i was convinced this was a a great idea plus i was like i'm going to do the exxon new story as the first season because this was like all of the the exxon documents had come out that had shown that you know, Exxon had done all this climate research and they knew exactly what was going to happen and how their product was involved and, you know, did nothing about it or actually, you know, tried to bury it in all these ways. Mm -hmm. Um, That story had broken like two years prior, but I didn't feel like it had really broken through to the general public. Mm -hmm. And I thought this actually gets into why podcasting. I thought maybe if people can hear directly from the scientists that were doing that work, Mm -hmm. that would make it Mm -hmm. kind of like sink in more. So I went through all the documents, pulled together a list of the names of all the scientists that had worked on these research projects and then cross-referenced that with obituaries because this all happened quite a while ago. Found, you know, half a dozen elder gentlemen that were willing to talk to me and like went and spent a bunch of time with them. And um, and I really like, to me, that's when I really was like, oh, podcasting actually is so helpful for getting certain things across because in mm, some of those, mm. like, One of the scientists is, he's still working now because he was quite young when he was doing research there. Um, And I interviewed him in his office and he got like really choked up because he was like, you know, I asked him what it felt like to sort of watch Exxon take more and more of an aggressive role in sort of like suppressing climate research. And and he was like, yeah, Mm -hmm. it was really hard to watch. And I felt like powerless to do anything about it. And I, you know, was so worried about the direction that the world was going in and sort of all of this stuff. And I was like, that is a lot more compelling than reading it in a document, you know? Yeah, Yeah. Um, absolutely. So, and even with like the documentary evidence in the case, I had um, this guy who had been the person that found all of those documents and sort of gave them to journalists. I had him read different parts of it and and there again well he has is blessed with like a good radio voice um but also it just made it it made it like sink into people more you know where they're like wow this was really strategic so anyway i i was convinced this was a good idea i started making it i was gonna say so far this sounds amazing I, i'm yeah. waiting for it to what is yes. the i pitched it to all the big uh podcast companies 
And I was like, I, I mean, I was really convinced. I'm like, I've got a total hit on my hands here. <laughs> like, this is cereal too, baby. This is yeah, <laughs> yeah. This, is it. this is like climate cereal. You guys are going to want this. And everybody was super interested. And then they all were like, there's just not enough of an audience to justify the budget for a wow. narrative podcast. Oh. Yeah. So I, um, I went out and got... Uh, like a little bit of grant funding and kind of cobbled together some stuff. And then I just made it like in my car at night. Um, oh, yeah. And like wow. with one, I had like one friend who helped with audio engineering. And then um, and that was it. And we got a million listeners in our first season. So wow. I was like, oh, my goodness. There is an audience. I'm just like flipping there the is. bird over here. There is an audience. <laughs> Like produced by In My Car Studios. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah. And then, you know, I was initially just going to do the one season. But in mm. the course of that, actually, is when I met the crab fisherman. And I was like, this is a great story. Like, this is such an interesting story. So then I made a season about them. And then then I was like, climate denial is such a stupid strategy. Why did it work so well? What was going on before climate denial and that? kind of led me to the whole universe of PR and sort of pro-fossil fuel mm -hmm. propaganda. And, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, I've just, now we're on season 10 and I'm like, I, I, yeah. you know, <laughs> I have like, I have like 10 more ideas per season. So I don't know. <laughs> that is so wild. That is so. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it's very different from what we do here, but yeah, I yeah. Totally. highly, highly recommend <laughs> if you're Thank into you. this kind of this style uh this kind of true crime style like it's such a good way to learn about this stuff yeah and you're, i'm so incensed and so like angry and uh and enraptured the whole <laughs> yeah, time good. Listening. That's the, someone was asking me the other day like what emotion i want people to come away from with with drills and i was like oh i want people to be like really pissed off like, yeah. <laughs> okay. it works it works it's, it's great. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very informed pissed off, which is good. good, good. It's, and it and it's better than than fear. In yeah, a way. you feel righteously pissed off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes, good, good, good. <laughs> Thank you so much, Amy, for joining us. You're so different from our style of podcasting. It's so important. I, 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 I can speak for myself. I assume it's this true for us. I feel like we all, I, I personally like admire very much the, the investigative work. I think the closest I've gotten personally on this show is like trying to solve the case of which animal has the most bones. And it's like, that's <laughs> cool, but like, I love it. But you know, it's always been something that we admire very much. And it's just so cool to know someone who is willing to investigate and debate and get fighty. <laughs> Uh, in, yeah. this, in this podcast sphere. It's great. Yeah. Thank you. Much needed. Amy, where can folks find you? Yeah, I am at drilled.media. That has all of our print stories, audio stories. We do. I do a lot of like co-publishing stories with other outlets too, but they'll always be on our site as well. Yeah. And then like most social media platforms, I'm at Amy Westervelt. Straightforward. Wow. <laughs> easy, easy. Perfect. <laughs> Does anyone else have any plugs or shout outs? I have a quick little plug. 
Uh, if you're in New York, I'm doing a comedy show with Earth Alliance uh, called Comedy and Creatures at the Bell House in Brooklyn uh, with proceeds going to the Gowanus Canal Conservancy. It happens to be a good overlap uh, with this episode in terms of it'll be for a good cause. I'll be doing jokes about bees and it'll be a good time. Amazing. And there's some other really funny people on the set list besides me who will be doing nerdy science stuff. What a good thing <laughs> to do, Tom. That sounds awesome. Dang. <laughs> So today we've learned about carbon capture and all the various things that can mean and all the different technologies in the, the space of, of things that we should be doing along with decarbonizing mm -hmm. the, the bad and also the good. Um, we've learned about the truly hilarious dark Avengers that are the <laughs> Atlas Network. <laughs> Like showing up like Doctor Who throughout history uh, yes. at all the wildest yeah. moments. And we've learned about Amy's oh, truly wild and, and, and I'll say inspiring saga of telling engaging climate stories. And you can all join us next time where we will learn about everything. Let's Learn Everything is a maximum fun podcast hosted and produced by Ella Hubber, Tom Lunn, and Caroline Roper, with editing and music by the wonderful and talented Tom Lunn. Amy, truly, truly, thank you so, so much. This was so much fun. Oh, yeah, this has oh, been fantastic. Oh, so great. Um, last thing, just remember to send me your audio. Awesome. I'll stick it on Dropbox and send you a link. Is that good? If you can, uh, yeah. So we're pretty okay. specific about the name. If you can name it Amy versus Tom versus Caroline versus <laughs> Ella debate. <laughs> so good. You can name it whatever you want. I apologize. <laughs> Maximum Fun, a worker-owned network of artist-owned shows. Supported directly by you.